You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Oh, you're not there yet. Awesome, because we're taping an intro to the podcast. We're taping an intro to the podcast. You're live on the air, and You are on the air. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Aaron Lammer, who's waiting to get picked up. His ride's almost here. I have a car here, waiting and, to go. And Max Linsky. No one ever picks me up. Max, who did you talk to this week? I talked to Jonathan Abrams, NBA Features writer for Grantland. He does these big, long profiles of mostly young guys in the league. And seeing as how tomorrow is the NBA Finals, it seemed like a good excuse to talk to Jonathan Abrams. If you need a good excuse to talk to people that you don't talk to that much, you might want to start an email newsletter, maybe with Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter, and they are our sponsors, and we thank them. Here's Max and Jonathan Abrams. Jonathan Abrams, thanks for uh, trekking all the way to Dumbo. Yeah, thanks for having me, Max. I appreciate it. Um, we are we are talking on uh, Tuesday. The Miami Heat just won Game Seven of the Eastern Conference Finals. Finals start tomorrow, I guess, because this is running on a Wednesday. Uh, do you have a prediction? Uh, yeah, I would be uh, surprised if if uh, the Miami Heat didn't win another championship until until you knock off the defending. Uh, champions and I think they always have a chance plus they had the you know the best player in the world we saw that last night in game seven yeah it, uh, I, I was it didn't seem like he was gonna let them lose no not at all and then you know you had Dwayne Wade come, suddenly come back to life and <laughs> out of the fucking woodworks and right. Dwayne Wade all of a sudden Dwayne Wade again yeah all of a sudden he got he got his knees back right. in between game six and seven um John, I, I wanted to have you on because I've been a real uh, fan of these long profiles you've been doing for Grantland, um, and and it might be helpful maybe for for uh, anyone who's listening who doesn't know your work for you to sort of explain what you do there. Yeah, um, well, I specialize in uh, in uh, long form, mostly basketball profiles. Um, I've done a few other features, a few oral histories where you know I 
it's, it's one quote after another of people involved in big NBA basketball events. You know, the biggest one is probably the the Malice at the Palace. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about that. But yeah, it's basically, you know, profiles, you know, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 words, probably more than anybody would want to read about Steven Jackson, but throw it all together and call it a piece. And What kind of stories are you looking for? You know, it's, it, it, it's not one particular one. Like, I think, like, I, I talked to Bill Simmons about it. I talked to my editor, Sean Fennessy, about it, and we just kind of try to find guys with interesting backgrounds, maybe guys who are either misunderstood or not explained fully. And we try to we try to go after guys like that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, you've written about Steven Jackson and Ricky Davis and Lance Stevenson. Uh, it seems like you're kind of drawn to players who have interesting backgrounds, but also have been totally typecast, like that have have huge reputations, often not very good ones. Yeah, and and my whole whole thought going into that is, these guys have these reputations. Maybe they're accurate, and maybe they're not. Um, but I just I just try to try to explain like why they are the way that they are. That's my whole goal in, in the profiles is trying to explain how they got to be this way, and whether it's you know reality or or, or not with these guys. I feel like um, that goal in and of itself is different than most sports writing, but. Part of the reason that most sports writers don't go out to try and sort of really explain an athlete is because athletes are so buttoned up, you know, like we, there's like all those jokes about those halftime interviews and like you can't get anyone to say anything that's not a cliche. How do you get these guys to open up? I mean, you, you know, you can't tell their story without them telling it to you. Right. So how, how do you how do you get that out of them? Right. I mean, there's there's different ways to go about it. Um, one thing that's been good for me is that I've covered the league probably you know, six or seven years now. I started out at the Los Angeles Times and then moved on to the New York Times. Um, so, you know, hopefully my face is familiar to most of these guys by now. Um, you know, I have good relationships with a lot of agents, a lot of uh, team PR people who will help me out if I say, Hey, you know, can I get Steven Jackson for a while in a one-on-one setting? You know, more times than not, they're going to help me out because people people know that the stories that I try to do, I'm not trying to burn anybody. I'm trying to tell a story for what it's worth and be be honest to that person. And I think that helps out. So you've got like a, a reputation. You do enough of these stories and then you call and people are like, oh, I'm going to get the Abrams treatment. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's happened a couple times, but I mean, it's, it's not that easy. It would be, you know, uh, if you saw like the list of people, like between Bill Simmons and, and Sean, my editor, who we like wanted to write about and they're like, no, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty extensive list. <laughs> Can you tell me anyone who's on that list? There's a good number. Um, oh, Tracy McGrady is one right now. He's, he's not doing much for San Antonio. Right. But, uh, Allen Iverson, I try to reach out to him, uh, but there's a lot. There may be like a, maybe like a one in like five chance that people would would actually want to do a story because you're asking somebody to tell their life story. I mean, it's 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 a lot, you know, and that person has to trust you. And even there's been sometimes when I'll get a person only for like ten minutes, but then I'll build that story around people who are close to that person who will be more enlightening to tell me about that person. Because most of the time when you when you talk to somebody, 
they're not going to, you know, be open about it or they're going to want to portray themselves in the best way possible where that's not the story you want, right? You right. want you want an honest story. You don't want to make it worse, you don't want to make it better. You want a, you want an honest story. And you want the people you interview to be able to, to to tell you, you know, what's what's right rather than inflate stuff. So that's really what I go for. How do you get guys to these guys to feel comfortable with you and and um, are there certain sort of questions that you ask everyone? Are there ways you get people to loosen up? Is it different for different guys? Like how do you approach it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's different for different guys. Whenever I settle on a profile subject, the first thing I do is print out everything I can find that's been written on that person. So I feel like I know that person inside and out. Um, the second thing I'll do is is I'll try to call and track down as many people as I can to talk to that person about, you know, their, their high school coach, high school teammates, um, family, college coaches, college teammates. Everybody I can who's been a part part of that road and part of that journey for that particular player. So I try to come into the interviews as knowledgeable about that person as possible. Um, most of the time I'll write down maybe like 25 questions that I want to ask a person. I don't, you know, sit there and, and read from a notepad questions, but I just have those in the back of my head in case we ever get stuck. Um, and then I, I just go from there. One of the questions I always ask anybody is, do you wish that I'd asked you anything? Because that's usually a question that gets one of the better answers because, you know, if I was being interviewed and if I really wanted to talk about something but the interviewer never asked me about it, I'd be kind of bummed about it. So, um, you know, that also helps that person think because usually they don't get that question and it it makes them think about what they really want to say and how they want the story to be portrayed. I'll make sure I ask you that at the end, (laughs) but I'm not going to ask you that. Um, how old are you? I'm 29. Do you think that having those kinds of uh, relationships with the people you're writing about who are also in their 20s is going to change as you get older? I, I know it will. But, <laughs> you know, I, I it, it's certainly to my advantage that a lot of these guys are age-wise my peers. You know, I, I broke in or I started covering the league when I was 23. And I remember I, I was a beat writer for the Clippers for the Los Angeles Times. And their rookie at that time, Al Thornton, was was my age. And it felt like we were both rookies at the same time. And, and we became, you know, real, real uh, good friends with each other. In fact, like I still call his mom just to, <laughs> just to ask her how she's doing every once in a while. Um, you know, and I can talk to these guys about, you know, music or, or uh, other stuff. And, you know, I'm, it probably doesn't come across on this podcast, but I am black. <laughs> so I look like a lot of these guys as well. And, you know, I, I don't think that that hurts me at all. Have you become friends with any of these guys that you've written about after the fact? Uh, not really. Because You're not I, hanging out with J.R. Smith? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Seems like so much fun. <laughs> Me and Riri. <laughs> J.R. Not. It, um, you know, I, I've always tried to keep it professional, not, not be friends with these guys. You know, I will say um, Elton Brand is, is a really, really good professional guy. He's, he's the only, only NBA player who will, like, email out of the blue and ask how you're doing and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I do... You know, there's nobody I really consider a friend, but I think Elton is is pretty close. Who do you think of? So you're writing, you know, whatever it is, seven thousand words about Stephen Jackson. Who, who's your audience? Who who are you like? Who are you writing for? 
I guess it would be the the, the basketball fanatic, you know. <laughs> it's uh, my my wife. She works for the New York Times, and, and she she does an education blog. And she was talking about target audience, and this was just a couple days ago. And I I thought about. It, I was like, you know what? I don't even know who my target audience is. You know, I guess it would have to be basketball fanatics to read that much about. You know. Not even a, a guy who hasn't even been an all-star once. A guy who's most known for shooting his gun in the air at a strip club. <laughs> but I mean, you know, when I want to like want to when I want to like watch a game on the weekends, and uh, occasionally my wife is not like that's not like her like number one activity. If I can like tell her the story, like the backstory of the. The, like the teams or one of the guys or whatever if i can like get her hooked on like the emotional aspect of it she'll like sit and watch with me and be super into it um and i feel like that's kind of like what you're doing in these stories a little bit like you have to have some sort of basketball iq i think to get it but it seems like you're trying to get at something beyond that with these guys yeah uh, i feel like um you know my stories will help you know these guys better uh, and that's it that's you know one of my main goals is that you know why this person is this way. When when they step on the court, you know why Monte Ellis is going to keep shooting the ball. Or you know why Zach Randolph is such a gritty player. Because I think, you know, the backgrounds and, and what these guys have gone through growing up, you know, it materializes in their game, I think. Are they, I mean, there's, you know, going to be differences from guy to guy but i like are they introspective like when uh, are these this like line of questioning when you're getting people to, like talk about their childhoods and uh you know talk about like their fears and stuff like that like um are they surprised by the questions are they like facile with that conversation i don't think so because i think i try to like lead them there where i want to go in steps <laughs> you know so i don't sit down and ask them you know ask steven jackson hey so tell me about that strip club <laughs> incident you know it's not <laughs> the the number one question so i think I, they are introspective you know zach randolph he was one of the most introspective um interviews i did because he was talking about he has a 14 year old son and he's talking about you know that age how impressionable they are and how impressionable he was at that age and he was you know really really you know talking about growing up and uh you know how rough he had it and without his dad and growing up in a place that was you know, racist at points, and you know he grew up in Marion, Indiana, and they had uh, I think that was the last place of a of a lynching in in the United States of a public lynching, and, and that you know really is seared into his brain. So you know the way people grew up is it, it really affects who they are today, obviously, and, and that's what I try to pull out. You know, I want people to be able to read my stories and be able to find out you know not just one thing new about somebody, but several several different new things. How did Randolph respond to that story once it came out? <laughs> it was actually funny because I, uh, you know, I don't, I try to wait until I can see the guys in, in person again. I don't try to call so they can, if they have beef with me, they can, you know, say it to my face. And, you know, Zach was like, you know, I like that story, Jonathan. I really like that story. I just thought it was a little too negative. <laughs> he was like, you know, there was like maybe like 30% positive and 70% negative. I wish it was like even some more. And, you know, I, I like I told Zach, you know, I try to, you know, ex I, I try to talk to him about how, you know, oh, I'm sorry you felt it was that way. You know, I try to really portray everything evenly and honestly. And then, and then after the game, 
he pulled me aside again just to tell me that, hey, I'm not mad at you. I just want you to know, you know, everything's cool with us. You know, I don't want you to to, to get the wrong idea. You know, he's he's a good guy. <laughs> Has uh, have other people not handled it quite so graciously? No, I think I think everybody is. Uh, has has responded pretty pretty well. Um, Royce White and Chauncey Billups and and Stephen Jackson were were happy with the stories that I did on them. Um, you know, J.R. Smith. I asked him a few weeks later what he thought of the story, and he was like, "What story?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, all right. Well, tell us a little bit about your story, man. How did you end up doing this? Well, um, I mean, I I grew up in in Southern California, loving sports and. Grew up loving reading newspapers. You know, I was one of those family, or I was part of one of those families where my dad had the paper in front of him first thing every morning. So you know, once my athletic career, I knew that didn't pan out in uh, in high school. That was pretty uh, pretty obvious. Uh, I, I knew that I wanted to go into journalism and kind of combine those two loves. So I went to USC and majored in print journalism. Print journalism. Print journalism. How old are you? I don't even know if they still have that around. <laughs> if they still have that around, man, that's like um, someone should do that just as a gag. Wait, so you actually you were you were like uh, I do not I'm not interested in digital journalism. Uh, well, uh, yeah, at that I only, time I only want to work on printed matter. Yeah, at that time it was it was viable, and I remember at USC when I was a freshman, that was the first year they had like these core classes, so you could major in print, major in broadcast, but you would still have to take some broadcast classes or some online journalism classes at that same time. And they were still trying to figure it out. <laughs> All right, so you majored in print journalism and then you went and got a print journalism job? I did. Um, you know, this was, you know, 2001, 2002. So, you know, newspapers okay. were still, they were still rolling. Yeah. I had one one year in 2004 where I was working for a newspaper and it, and it felt like... Uh, in hindsight, it was like the last good year. It, it probably was, you know. Um, it's it's funny because I did this like big. I, I did a, a summer in, a summer internship at the LA Times after I graduated college, and that was in sports. And then I decided that I wanted kind of a, a fuller journalism background, so I went. I did this like college program of recent graduates where it was 10 of us from all these good schools, you know, Harvard, Stanford, who wanted to go into journalism. And it was a program ran by Tribune called MetPro. Um, so all of us basically interned at the LA Times for a year in different different sections, and, and we moved around a bit, and we wrote for the paper. And then at the end of it, they have like this draft, where it's the most stressful thing ever. There's, <laughs> there's 10 of you, right? And all all of these papers like get to draft one one journalist so you could be staying at the LA Times or going to the Chicago Tribune or going to like Allentown or, or Stanford or, or Newport News Virginia so there's a really really big discrepancy and it was you know stressful did they like announce it in order no I forgot how they just brought people back and you like met with your newspaper it was like you know meeting your new foster parents right <laughs> I I Ended up staying at the Los Angeles Times. Yeah, good deal. Yeah, I was like, and I, I did you just taunt the other nine? No, because it was because uh, my wife, well, my future wife was one of them. But she was <laughs> she's from uh, Florida and she went to the Orlando Sentinel, so it was a good deal for her too. Right on. All right, so you landed at the at the L.A. Times and started covering the Clippers. 
Well, for a year, I worked in a in a bureau in Riverside, uh, covering all types of like court, crazy court cases because it's all the desert and crazy people out there and you know wildfires and stuff, good stuff like that. So I did that for a year, and then they put me on the Clipper beat because I wanted to go back into sports. And how long did you do that for? Just a year before uh, before I came over to the New York Times. Traveling with the team and everything. Yeah, well, you know, in the NBA, it's stressful because you're always chasing the team. So the team leaves after after a night game, and you have to spend the night in that city, and then you have to take the first flight out <laughs> and try to catch up to them. It's a it's it's not a sustainable life. Yeah, it seems like a it seems like a good job for a 23 year old. Although, I mean, there are a bunch of guys who have tried to make it a sustainable life. I mean, people have been doing this for years and years. Yeah. Were you like accepted into the like you know beat writer fraternity? Yeah, I mean that's that's the one thing. I, well, I could say more than one thing, but that's a really big thing about NBA writers is that it really feels like it's a you know fraternity, sorority, whatever. Where I can you know, have so many friends and I can call up uh, so many different people and for for anything. If I need a number, if I need you know. Anything. A lot of them got invited to my wedding just because, you know, it's competitive and everything, but people know where to draw the lines and people are friends for life. So you spent a year doing the Clippers and then you went to the Times. How is it different sort of move? I mean, how is covering basketball in New York different than covering basketball in L.A.? You know, it it wasn't all that different, to be honest with you. And I was expecting a, a huge difference. I was expecting these crazy, psycho, aggressive New York reporters and me this laid-back Southern California kid to get eaten up, and I was really nervous and really, you know, thinking about the change. But, of course, my wife was, well, fiance, no, girlfriend at the time was moving to uh, New York for grad school to go to NYU, so that made the, the change a lot easier and and more acceptable. But, I mean, I was scared for a while, but, you know, it, you just deal with some of the random craziness of, of the tabloids and, and know that, you know, most of what they do is going to be entertaining above all else. And you just go with that. You know, How, Howard Beck at the Times, who still their resident basketball writers, was a really, really good mentor for me. And he's a great, great writer. So he was really good to learn from. I told Howard, I feel like he he's too smart to be a journalist. Like he, he's, he's wasting his talents when he should be, you know, like a scientist or something. He, he's just like the best compliment I, I feel like I gave him is he, he feels like it feels like every single word he writes like was meant to be there. And when you're doing that on deadline on a really consistent basis, it's, it's just amazing. So, you know, with him, I think I learned a lot about how to be a professional, how to write on deadline, because in, in New York, you know, you go you go out west from New York and the deadlines get rougher. Right. Because of the time difference. Right. If you're in Los, if you're writing for a Los Angeles paper and you go out east, you get more time. So it, it's you know going from Los Angeles to New York and having to write game stories, you know, have ninety five percent of it done before the game ends, you know, and a last second shot could change who actually wins the game. You know, Howard could do that. I was never, I felt like I never completely mastered that, but I certainly got better having watched Howard do it. So you're writing for. LA Times, you come to the New York Times, you're writing these game reports, you're doing daily journalism, you're writing on deadline, and then all of a sudden you land at Grantland and you start writing 7,000 word stories. How did that happen? Uh, it's, it's actually funny because I had never met Bill Simmons 
You know, I didn't think he knew who I was. And I was that remember that that Lakers series a couple years ago when the Lakers just got throttled by the Mavericks. Yeah. The Mavericks. I was at Staples Center covering the game for the Times and uh Jay Adande of ESPN, who I'm friends with, just came up to me and said, Hey, Bill's looking for Bill Simmons is looking for you and I said, oh, okay. You know, I didn't know what it was about. Um and we went over and, and found Bill and Bill introduced himself. You know, he said he told me a little bit about Grantland and Grantland hadn't even been hadn't come out yet. It was still a few months away from debuting. But he asked me what type of journalism I was interested in doing. And I said, you know, eventually I want to try to do long form because that's the type of journalism that I like reading the most. And, you know, I would really like to see what I can do if I have time to actually ingest what I see, you know, rather than write on deadline every night and just hope that it makes sense uh, when you send it off. And, you know, we talked and and then the next day I came in and I met with I met with the Bill and Dan Fairman, who's a managing editor, and Jay Caspian King, who is a alumni of this podcast. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I got a really, really good vibe from it all. And it was still really, really tough to leave the New York Times because the Times was really, really good paper, really good to me. I made a lot of friends. It's also it, the New York Times. It's also the New York fucking Times. <laughs> You know, leaving it for for a website that it's backed by ESPN, but at the same time, it's something that doesn't exist yet. You know, it's going to be Bill Simmons. It's going to be ESPN. You know, you know, it's going to be good. But putting that up against the New York fucking Times, it's still (laughs) it's still a close call. You know, it was like 51, 49. Yeah. Did it take you a while to make the decision? It did. It did to the point where Bill was like, I'm starting to get worried. (laughs) But um uh, I think I just emailed Bill and, and John Walsh from ESPN. I think I just sent a like two word, three word email, like I'm in, <laughs> and that was it. You know, what tipped it? Uh, there was a few things. It was the the chance to be able to do long form journalism, uh, the chance to eventually move back to California, uh, which is where I would want to live. Those were the two biggest things, and and you know, I didn't know it at the time, but working. With Bill has been great. Bill is an incredible guy. Um, you know, you can bounce ideas off of him. He's read a lot of my stories and, and given suggestions and honestly edited them before I, you know, they run. I feel like there's like seven Bill Simmons running around. Like, <laughs> how is, you know, for a print journalism major, how has uh, it been different writing for the Internet? I mean, there's the only difference is, you know, you can't even, but I was about to say you can't pick up what you do and, and, you know, read it. But, you know, even with Grantland, we print out the Grantland quarterly. So I guess, I guess you can. So, you know, honestly, there hasn't been much of a difference because even, even with newspapers, so much of the emphasis was going toward online anyways, where you could have longer stories online or you could do write throughs. Uh, that would be online and that would be the better story, but you just didn't have time to to do that good of a story for the paper. So you would know you would take comfort in knowing that at least it was online and better than the, the, the ramble that you sent in for the newspaper that had to be cut off because it didn't lie. So, I mean, I think that's the two biggest things is like length. I can obviously write a lot longer and, and there's no deadline. So I have no excuse for stories not to be good. Even on the Internet, most people still have a deadline. How do you, without having that like kind of firm 
deadline how, how do you how do you get this stuff done like how do you keep yourself going um you know it's I think I'm a, a motivated person where I want to see myself do well and I want to keep getting better if if I think if I wasn't wired that way then it would be a real big problem <laughs> especially because I live in New York and Grantland is based in Los Angeles so you know it's it's it would be pretty easy to slack off this podcast kind of modeled on uh WTF if you're listening to that, that Mark Marin podcast yeah Jay wrote about him and um part of the thing that guy's been doing it for like years or I don't know how long he's been doing it. he's done hundreds of episodes right and like his thing is also like he kind of gets into it like starts talking about your childhood and like you know he kind of goes for like the soft underbelly of people um and I've gotten this sense now that when I'm listening to it like people are coming on prepared so either they like walk in and they're like I'm not gonna let you go there with me or they like have their like sob story lined up you know and always like almost like feels rehearsed do you Worry at all that like people are going to start knowing they're getting that treatment from you and kind of like tailor the story a little bit. Like, can you can you continue to get guys to be that open with you, or is it at some point like is that going to get harder to do? I know it's a good question. You know, I don't think that there's any any lack of compelling NBA stories or NBA personalities. I mean, I think I can keep going and going and. You know, I really wanted to do a story on Chris Anderson for these playoffs. Chris was another guy who said no, or I think I... He's got a talk, crazy backstory. Yeah, I think I could have really, really did a good story on him. But as it turns out, I still... I went down I went down to Miami and I have a story on Chris Bosch that's... I think it'll be up, I think, Thursday. I think we decided we were going to run it because I was sweating bullets that they were going to win yesterday. So that story would still, <laughs> would still go up. Um... But yeah, I mean, I think people people have different stories, you know. If it gets too tough, I can, you know, switch sports or something. Right. Do you have are there non basketball things that you want to write about? Uh, there are. You know, the funny thing was that I, I thought when I was coming to Grantland that I was going to do uh, different sports, but I just got into a routine and a rhythm of doing NBA. You know, that's what I'm comfortable with. That's the sport that I love. That's a sport that Bill Simmons obviously loves, so I guess we just fell into that pattern. Um, but I think I'm going to do basketball for the foreseeable future. I mean, because I'm I'm also working on a book right now about the NBA's whole high school to uh, NBA generation of players. So I think that'll really, uh, you know, take up a lot of reporting time too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> When's that book supposed to come out? Uh, January 2015 is when the manuscripts do, so I have a little <laughs> bit of time. Man, how do you even tackle a project like that? Like, are you like uh, working on it every day? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, already. Um, I'm trying to work on it every day. I mean, I have a, you know, obviously with the book proposal, I had to do an outline of all the chapters, and you know, it's gonna be a shitload of interviews. <laughs> it's already been a shitload of interviews, and you know, at some point, I'm gonna have to sort everything out. Right now, I'm in a, I guess, gatherer mode where right. I'm just trying to get as much stuff as I can. Do you have like a like a general thesis though? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the, well, the whole you know one and done rule to me is ridiculous, and you know, to me, I think a lot of these guys were were, were victims, you know, really eaten up and spit out by the system. You know, a lot of them weren't successful, but the guys who 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 weren't failed pretty spectacularly, and I, I think the system should have been set up better to protect them from 
outside influences, say runners, agents, family, aggressive family members who wanted to capitalize, um, those type of things. What would be a better system than, than one and done? Well, for one, I feel like there shouldn't be a one and done rule. Guys should be able to go straight to the NBA if, if they're ready, you know, and it should be the team and the executives to be able to decide, uh, you know, if they're ready or not. And then if they're not ready and if they decide for the NBA, you know, why shouldn't they be able to to, to go to college if, even if they declare? You know, why should that be a forfeiting of their eligibility? I mean, it makes no sense, these amateur rules. Right, I mean, especially when you see, like, injuries like Noel and, you know, I mean, it just seems like uh, you're just putting these kids at risk. Yeah, don't don't steal any of my chapters. <laughs> uh, probably the most famous story you've written so far for Grantland was this oral history of the malice of the palace when Ron Artest went in the stands. Yeah. Well, maybe you could you could for anyone who's listening. I don't I don't know how many sports fans we have listening to the podcast. So maybe you could just kind of like uh, give the backstory of that. So this happened in two thousand late two thousand four. Uh, the Pistons and the Pacers played each other in Detroit, and there was a lot of bad blood stemming from a tough playoff series these teams went through the previous year, and uh, you know basically. Toward the end of the game, Ben Wallace and Ron Artest got into it. Uh, ben Wallace kept escalating the situation. Ron Artest went and laid down on the score on the scores table, and then uh, a fan threw a cup <laughs> that uh, splashed onto Artest, and all hell broke loose. You know, Artest, long before he was Metal World Peace and found his Zen, ran into the stands and you know tried to go after the fan. I think he went after a wrong one. Uh, the the Pacers, uh, several of them, threw punches at, at fans. You know, Stephen Jackson ran up there, started throwing punches at anybody and everybody. Jonathan Bender tried to lean way back and, and throw a haymaker at a fan, but he luckily slipped. Um, or else a bunch of people thought he would have, you know, really, really did a lot of damage to that guy. And, you know, uh, fans, the Pacers were trying to exit the court and fans were throwing debris and and even chairs onto the court it it really quickly went from a fight between the Pacers and the Pistons to a fight between the Pacers and the fans of the Pistons it's this incredibly bleak night and I you know I mean I kind of like remember when it happened but I rereading your story and when I read it for the first time it's like you forget how wild it was like you forget how like the air in there and and Hearing the guys who are on the court and the guys who are involved talk about it, like they they still seem shook up about it. Oh, without a doubt, I think uh, Jermaine O'Neal was really obviously still bothered by it and, and how it just about ended his his relationship in Indianapolis with that team and that franchise. Where you know he just, I mean, he told me everybody needed a fresh start after that, and you know Stephen Jackson as well. You know Stephen Jackson. Was was complaining, saying, you know, to this day, Ron Artest hasn't thanked him for having his back and running up into the stands with him because, you know, Stephen Jackson was worried about Ron Artest's well-being more than anything else. You know, that's what he said. <laughs> right. I don't know if throwing punches wildly is the answer to that, but how hard did you try and get Artest? Very. <laughs> um, there are a few people who didn't talk, or who wouldn't talk to me for that story. Because, you know, even though it was 
seven or eight years later, it was still fresh in, in their minds. And Artest was one of those people. Um, you know, I tried several times through the Lakers PR and the, the Lakers PR guy, John Black, was trying to get, he tried to get Ron to, to talk to me for it, but Ron just didn't have it. And then I tried to get him when the when the Lakers played here that year against the Knicks and, and he wouldn't talk to me about it. Um, it. It's actually funny because it was really, really hard to talk to people about this at the beginning. And I, I went, um, the the Bucks played the Knicks here and Steven Jackson was still on the Bucks then. And I had maybe talked to Steven Jackson once and it was uh, you know one question, two sentence answer. And he... Um, he was suspended for that night's game because I went down to to talk to him or to try to talk to him at shoot around, but he missed shoot around, so he got suspended for that that night's game. So then I came to the game that night and I talked to the Milwaukee Bucks PR guy. His name is Dan, and I was like, you know, you think I can still get Steven? You know, you think he would still talk about this? And Dan's like, well, you know, let me see. Hold on. Um, you know, stand in this stand in this room next to the locker room. So I'm standing in this room, and all of a sudden I hear Steven's voice saying, "Oh man, I love talking about the brawl. I love talking about the brawl." <laughs> and I, I thought, "Ah oh, man, he's just being facetious about it. You know, he doesn't want to talk about it at all." Um, no, it was the complete opposite. He had been waiting to talk about it for a while, and he talked about it for you know 45 minutes or an hour to the point where the game was getting ready to start, and I had to get out of there, but. You know, it was, and that's what made the story go from there. Um, other people didn't want Stephen Jackson's memory to, I guess, to be there to stand up for them. You right. know, Stephen Jackson <laughs> could not be the entire record of the yeah. <laughs> so then the then the next one was um, the next key one to get was Jermaine O'Neal, um, and Jermaine was like the last. I think he was the last interview I did, and he had said he had said no a few times but I still got the impression that maybe he would be willing to talk so I kept I kept coming after him even to the point where I, I showed him one of the drafts you know without him in it and then he finally agreed to do it and then he said he forgot about it so then I had to go up all the way to Boston to, to get him again and then he finally did it on the phone and talked about it and I think it was I think it was good for him because he had a lot of a lot of key quotes, and he apologized to Indianapolis and the city for what that fight uh, did to it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you know he just had tremendous regrets, and you, I mean, you got the impression. I'm not sort of not surprised to hear that you got the impression like he hadn't said a lot of that stuff out loud, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Was the goal from the start to do it as an oral history? Yeah, it was. Um, it would have been tough to do that as a straight story. Uh, I think you know oral histories. I think they can get gimmicky i guess if you do them too much yeah. um i wouldn't say they've got like a great uh rep at this point yeah history well yeah there's been a few that i'm like shake my head at <laughs> <laughs> they don't have to be you know why not just write the story right um but i i think any oral history i think it needs you know a lot of conflict a lot of uh you know sex drugs and, and <laughs> things like that you know and violence, I think it has to be almost like a movie that you're reading. And I think, you know, the the Malice at the Palace oral history, I think, had that. Are they easier, oral histories? Are they easier to do? No. Um, I, don't, I don't think so, because 
if I was, you know, writing a story and if I needed to transition, I, I could write that transition. You know, on this, you're you're relying on your whole interview power. You need people to build the scenes, to make the scenes, to create the controversy, to be able to to transition through the voices for everything to be linear and everything to make sense and for you to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They're, they're a lot tougher to me. Do you end up, like, getting the basic... I mean, how do you approach an oral history? Maybe take us through, like, the process. Like, do you have an outline? You're trying to fill holes? How does it work? You just try to talk to everybody you can that was involved. You know, it's not that much different from how you start off or how I start off doing a regular story. You try to do that, and then you you just try to pile up the best quotes and then from there it's almost like you're you're a director trying to put together the scenes and the voices what was the reaction to that malice in the palace story i, I mean, think from the players and from the league and i i think it was good um you know i think it helped you know there was obviously some of why now or why are you revisiting this now because it wasn't like it was a anniversary or anything but you know, I think talking about it and the NBA not running away from it was a little bit, you know, therapeutic. Um, just now I feel like you can completely put that uh, put that behind them. All right, so your prediction is uh, Heat are going to beat the Spurs, and then what What does an NBA writer do in the offseason? Uh, this one works on his book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, there's, you know, offseason is such a, a funny term because there really is none now you go from you know the finals to the draft to free agency to summer league to you know you're lucky if you get a, a couple weeks off you know for the beat writers so it seems like it's time what what haven't i asked you why haven't you asked me you know what you're a pretty good interviewer um you know we talked about that's a bullshit dodge <laughs> You know, that's the, that's the response I've gotten so far <laughs> from, uh, from some players. That's the response I like the most. <laughs> Jonathan, thanks so much for coming in, man. Oh, it was a pleasure, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our episode this week was sponsored by Tiny Letter. Thanks very much to Jonathan Abrams for coming in. We'll be back next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. 
You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.